Forletta Investigates. Hello, everyone. Thank you for a great season of Forletta Investigates. We'll be back for season two in October of 2021 with many more great guests within law enforcement. I want to thank the many heroes who were guests on our show. If you missed any of our shows, you can go back and listen to all of them anytime on your favorite podcast app or head over to our website at www.fcisllc.com. The purpose of our show is to give you insight in what our law enforcement people do every day for our community and our country. Here is one of the great interviews in case you missed it. See you in October. Okay, so I want to welcome our guests, and I'm honored and fortunate to have them on our podcast. They are both DEA legends and responsible for bringing down one of the world's most powerful narco-terrorists named Pablo Escobar. Escobar was responsible for the deaths of thousands of law enforcement, government officials, and the citizens in the, the country of Colombia. So without further ado, I want to welcome former DE agents Javier Pena and Steve Murphy. Uh, I think both of you will agree that the success of DEA and their agents really go unheralded. Javier? Yeah, thank you, Larry. We appreciate you inviting us. And, and you're right. Sometimes the job that the DEA agent does does not get credit. I mean, there's people out there that are quick to criticize, but the job of men and women, and I'm talking about agents, analysts, the diversion investigators, all these people, and, uh, you know, and I want to do a plug for the analysts, man. Sometimes the job they do, the agent takes the credit, but sometimes the analyst is the one who did all the work putting that, that case together. Yeah, that's, that's, that's uh, well understood, and I've always... Uh always complimented all of our peoples and members of DEA. What about you, Steve? Absolutely. And it's an honor to be here with you, Larry. Thanks for having us on the show. Uh, I concur 110% with what JP just said. You know, the the analysts are the brains and the agents are the brawn, it seems like, in the investigation. So uh, they deserve all the credit. And, uh, you know, the, I, we appreciate you, too, having the show on to promote DEA because we all know DEA is horrible at promoting itself. So it's, you know, it's about time that the world found out more about the heroes that are out there and what really goes on. Well, that's true. And, and DEA has always sort of been in the shadows of uh, other, uh, let's say, federal law enforcement agencies that uh, really never have gotten the credit that they, they truly deserve for all the men and women who gave their lives for this country. Um, so a little bit more about uh, Javier and Steve. Uh, they were both technical advisors for a phenomenally successful Netflix series called Narcos. Um, I just want to mention also they have a new book out called Manhunters, how we took down Pablo Escobar, and we will uh, we will be discussing it a little later. Um, I read it, and I can tell you it's an excellent book. Um, something about both of these gentlemen, uh, they have reached uh, a successful uh, career within DEA. They, they astounded and became the... Uh, in, in some of the highest level managements within DEA. Uh, both uh, were called special agents in charge, and they held, they both held a variety of leadership roles in positions within DEA. And uh, it would take me another hour uh, just to go with everything these two gentlemen have done in their career. So uh, now we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of this, and uh, we're going to be discussing their investigation on, on, uh, on Pablo Escobar. Um, 
as I understand it, uh, that uh, Javier was already had been assigned into the Bogota, excuse me, country office, working on a uh, Pablo Escobar case with the uh, CMP, as they're also known as the uh, uh, Colombian National Police. So, Javier, tell us what your relationship was with CMP and, and what were some of your biggest challenges? Yeah, Larry, uh, and I get to Colombia in 1988, and I'm assigned a Pablo Escobar investigation. And to be honest, I did not know much about Pablo Escobar. You know, we all had heard his name. So once I started, you know, uh, with, you know, digging in and uh, understanding and realizing what was out there, obviously, as you know, we don't have jurisdiction, right? So we're there as liaison. And uh, but we had a specialized group of cops uh, we worked with in Bogota. It was from a unit called Dijin, D-I-J-I-N, and it was like the plain clothes uh, cops. So we started working with them on just a lot of other cases. And all of a sudden, when they formed uh, the search against Pablo Escobar, these guys were assigned to search for Escobar. So we already knew this guy. So when we get to Medellin. Most of those guys, they knew us. And you know what, Larry? One of the things uh, working for, and as a lot of people know, it's it's about that trust. The trust is everything. Once they trust you and you trust them, that just opens up a lot of doors, makes the job a lot easier. So anyway, uh, in the, the first search on Pablo Escobar, like you said, it, it wasn't like the one Steve and I participated in. The first time, I'd go there, TDY, you know, a couple of days at a time, and I'd fly up back out because it was just like really dangerous. So I'd meet with our uh, specialized unit. We exchanged a lot of information because we were getting a lot of stuff from Miami at this time on Pablo Escobar. And uh, we'd go there two, three days. And uh, that's when Pablo Escobar was really hitting the Sicarios, you know, where he was working with them. Sicarios were out of control. Uh, and then obviously, you know, if we fast forward to the surrender, uh, you know, and then fast forward to the escape where Steve and I worked then. But, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, it was, you know what, and a lot of people ask us about the corruption. At the beginning, Larry, there was corruption because we had police officers that were based in Medellin. So Pablo Escobar being... Uh, Pablo Escobar would get to their families and uh, threaten them and basically say, hey, if your uh, kid doesn't tell me that they're coming after me, I'm going to kill your kid. I'm going to kill you, the family. So once we weeded that out, then we were able to understand and just bring in other guys that were not from Medellin. Javier, explain a little bit what Sicarius is, because I know that... People don't, the people that right. are going to be listening won't understand <laughs> yeah. what they are. Right. The Sicario is a paid assassin that were from Pablo Escobar. And this uh, assassins were all young, uh, I call them young thugs, you know, 14, 15, 16 year old. Pablo Escobar would recruit them. And uh, he'd give them money and, you know, a uh, place to stay and food. So their allegiance were to Pablo Escobar. And at this time, Pablo Escobar was being idolized in Medellin. Mm -hmm. Everybody wanted to work for Pablo Escobar. I mean, I've interviewed several sicarios who told me that they would kill and they would die for Pablo Escobar. So it was that charismatic Pablo Escobar uh, being that they all wanted to work for him. So... And, and like I said, they were just paid assassins, and you had hundreds of them. We estimated Escobar had about at least 500 working for him in Medellin. 
Well, these were the Sicarius were mostly, as you said, were made up of uh, younger, I, I guess, called some of them children in some of the poorest neighborhoods, uh, which I guess money was the ultimate object uh, in recruiting these young men. Right. Yeah. And, and the money, that's the main thing. And, and like I said, one of the Sicarios in particular, 15 year old one, we, we arrested him, said, you know what? I love Pablo Escobar, my mom. He gave her a house. He's given her money. We were living in uh, cardboard boxes. So he, you know, like I said, the guy hugs me and kisses me. You know, it makes me feel important. So my mom is happy. She's got food. Oh, I'm going to kill for Pablo Escobar. Then, and kind of interesting. He said, you know what? I'll be dead by 22, 23 years old. I'm not going to make it out of the barrios of Medellin, the, the neighborhoods, the shanty towns of Medellin. So I, you know, I will die and kill for Escobar. Right. And, and Medellin at the time uh, was one of the most violent cities in, in uh, Colombia. Uh, I, when I was looking through some of the stats through your book, you know, there was something like 20 murders a day and thousands of uh, police officers and government officials had been murdered uh, within the, within that area. You know what, Larry, it got to the point there where Medellin was the murder capital of the world during that time. Um, and during that second manhunt, there were weekends where Javier and I'd go back to Bogota. We'd you know leave on uh, Saturday morning, get back on Monday morning. There had been as many as 300 murders. Over wow. over the weekend, wow. two days in a city of two million people. Wow. Well, uh, and Steve, so now uh, you later join uh, Javier in, in, in Bogota. And so what was your first impression of Javier and the challenges that uh, you're both faced? Well, it, you know, uh, I don't want to blow his head up here, but uh, <laughs> Javier was somewhat of a legend. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> he was, uh, you know, he was somewhat of a legend there in Bogota because he'd already been there for three years. And, and he turned the entire Escobar investigation around and started making it successful. Uh, you know, they were, I think they were just doing the minimum amount when he got there, but he implemented some ideas and uh, really developed a close working relationship with the Columbia National Police. So, uh, you know how it is, Larry, when you go overseas, yep. You're not sure what cases you're going to be assigned to. And, and that first week, it's, it's a little bit of a touchy-feely type atmosphere where you're learning your way around the embassy. You're getting your security passes. You're, you know, you want to know where the cafeteria and the bathroom are right? Uh, and how to get out of the building because it was a pretty big embassy. So uh, Javier was, was partnered up that time with another agent named Gary Sheridan. Well, it turns out Gary and I had some mutual acquaintances in law enforcement back in the United States. And, and so we just kind of quickly became friends there. And, and, uh, you know, so through the introduction of Gary to Javier, that's how I got started with him. Um, and it's, and it's one of those things where you want to see if you get along with each other as well. Sure. Gary knew he was up for promotion and, and eventually he did get a promotion. He became the, the resident agent in charge up in Barranquilla and transferred out. And because I'd already had that time with working with him and Javier, you know, that just put me into the position permanently where, you know, JP and I have been, partners now since 1991. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing, isn't it? And uh, so, uh, Javier, I, I know that uh, there were some uh, incidents of a little bit of joking and questioning about Steve's Spanish uh, <laughs> in, in the series. So, uh, un problema I, con mi español? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to, since uh, 
since since Javier's our resident expert in Spanish, <laughs> uh, I just wanted to get his opinion about your Spanish, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> be honest, Javier. Be honest. <laughs> now you know what he communicated, and you know what over oh, there, as as long as you're trying, they're gonna, you know, they would make fun of him. But you know, he got he communicated with with the cops. They knew exactly what he was saying, and uh, and even my Spanish, you know, I'm I'm. Uh, you know, I grew up speaking Spanish first, but my Spanish is Spanglish. You know, I grew up on the border. Sure. So, you know, that Tex-Mex, like we call right. it Tex-Mex, it's very different. So even the Colombians would correct me because they were used to speaking that Castilian, you know, mm -hmm. the, the correct one. And we don't speak correct Spanish, you know. So it was a, you know, we communicated, they would laugh, but they knew what we were talking about. So it, it was all good, you know. Well, so tell us the, the risk the challenges and dangers that both of you guys faced, such as the corruption and political interference. And I'll start with you, Javier. Yeah, and briefly, as we mentioned, the corruption, it wasn't that bad. It was at the beginning, but once we got rid of that, we weeded out the the cops that were from Medellin. Because, man, we, I mean, you know, it was common sense. You know, cops were working with us from Medellin, and all of a sudden, we would catch them making phone calls, warning Escobar. Uh, so we quickly got rid of them and brought in just guys who were from not Medellin. And you know what? What helped us was that it started getting personal against Escobar. What I mean by personal is that these guys were not corruptible. They hated Pablo Escobar. They wanted to see him dead because of all the cops that Pablo Escobar was killing. You know, we had, uh, I don't know, five or six from our search block that were killed by Pablo Escobar. So that just, that incensed the cops that were going after him when, you know what, and there's a great antidote um, in, uh, where they would tell Steve and I, you know what, we're not here to seize money. We're not here to seize dope. You know, Peña Murphy, we're telling you the truth. We're here to kill Pablo Escobar. So that made it a different type of a search. It was more revenge. It was from the heart. Uh, you know, they didn't care about the money. They didn't care about dope. Uh, uh, so it, it was because, like they said, of the police officers. Uh, and then if you look at, you know, you've mentioned the, the bounties on police officers, the thousands that got killed. You you know, you look at the, at the citizens of Colombia for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, we can go on and on about, you know, Pablo Escobar, you know, was body counts, you know. Uh, Larry, you mentioned thousands of police officers, thousands of people that Pablo Escobar killed. Actually, Steve and I made a uh, an estimate. We we said it is about ten to 15,000 people Pablo Escobar killed. And, uh, and then afterwards, you know, uh, one of his main sicarios, Popeye, who got out of prison about five years ago, he recently, uh, you know, passed away. I think he got cancer or something. But anyway, uh, he claims, and this guy worked directly for Escobar, he claims the number was closer to 50,000 people. So that puts a different perspective on, on you know, Pablo Escobar. Sure. And uh, so it was just, uh, you know, and, and, you know, Larry, you know, we, we're DEA guys. You know, we worked the streets and we, we never, we weren't used to what, you know, a narco terrorist, you know, which which what did we encounter with Pablo Escobar. So that was always a different type of a search. How about you, Steve? What's your take on it? You know, when you first get there and, and uh and you start making friends and then eventually they tell you, Hey, by the way, there's a $300,000 price tag on your head. Uh, 
that's a little disconcerting to be quite honest with you to start with. Um, you know, a, a gringo, I'm, I'm about as white as you get, Larry. I'm come from an English Irish background and I've got light colored eyes, light colored hair, light colored skin. I'm six foot two. I'm taller than most Colombians. You know, I, I don't blend into that kind of country. <laughs> sure. So, you know, you're already sticking out and, uh, my wife and I, if we went to a shopping mall or something like that in Bogota, people would stop and stare at me as I walked by and, you know, you're thinking it was my zipper open and I have something hanging out of my nose or what's going on here. Right. But, um, it's like anything else, you know, you, I mean, you're hypervigilant all the time. You're always aware of your surroundings, what's going on, who's coming, getting close to you, who's watching you. But, uh, you know how it is through repetition, you develop complacency, right? Sure. Not, not that you ignore it, but you get used to it. I guess that's the easier way to say it. So uh, you just learn to live with it. And, um, you know, I'm sure egos get out there a little bit that, uh, you know, hey, go ahead, try me. But <laughs> I'm not a tough guy. So that probably would have failed. But well, it was, you know, it was, I have to be honest with you, it was exciting. We were flying around on Huey gunships, conducting operations, going out on surveillances with the cops <laughs> and the plane marked cars. And uh, it was a, one of the most exciting periods of my entire life. So I, I take it that eventually uh, Pablo Escobar knew who you two guys were. Yeah, he did. <laughs> you know, it's uh, so the Columbia National Police were conducting wiretaps down there on on the phones associated with Escobar and his organization, and there were mentioned on some of the phone calls about the two gringos, which was Javier and I, and in one particular phone call, even the names Pena and Murphy were mentioned. Larry, I got to tell you, this ain't like that show Cheers where you want everybody to know your name. This is sure. a guy you don't want to know your name. <laughs> well, I mean, this guy was a very powerful man in Colombia, uh, probably more powerful than the, the president of Colombia at one time. Um, and Javier, I know that uh, at one point when you were living in Bogota, there were some specific threats uh, made against you. And I guess you were living in some nice, luxurious uh, apartment. <laughs> Yeah, Larry. Yeah, let me just say, you know what? I came from. I was stationed in Austin, Texas. You know what? And I had a little, I don't know, thousand foot apartment. Moving special was like, I don't know. I remember like two hundred and fifty bucks a month. So, you know, it was a little place. So then I get to Bogota. I says, Pena, you're gonna be living here, and it was like a penthouse. Wow, I don't know, like five thousand square foot apartment. I had never. My living room was all glass, man, all the way from one side to the other side. I had the beautiful mountains of Bogota. Then I had the city view, the lights. I mean, I remember it was like on the 18th floor. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So one day I get a call from my boss, a great guy, Bruce Stock. He was a, a veteran of, uh, you know, the foreign arena and uh, just a great, great guy. You know, always big guy, but always very steady, very calm. So he calls me up and says, Javier, are you at home? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, all right, listen, I'll, I'll explain later, but uh, just get your gun, you know. I said, what? He said, just get your gun and, and just come back to the embassy. Don't uh, don't get too nervous. But we think there's some people coming, <laughs> that are coming after to go kill you. I said, what? <laughs> you know, like, what do you mean? He said, just get in your, uh, we had Broncos at that time, you know. So I'll explain later, but get out of there right now. <laughs> you know, this is from a calm guy from, a, you know, he's been in the foreign arena for a long time. He said, Something serious here, you know. So I get hit. I once I get to the embassy, they said there was some intercepts. That there were some guys 
that Escobar had ordered to come and uh, you know and get me. So uh, obviously, you know, you know, I got lucky in that they I didn't get moved back to the states. As you know, there's a threat right. you know, that we get moved back. So they just said, "Nah, we're just going to change you apartments." <laughs> okay, uh, but uh, it, it, that was what you know. I mean, Escobar knew us, and when we lived at the, in Medellin at the search block, the search block was where we it was an old police base. And uh, Steve and I, you know, we lived with our Colombian guys, uh, Colombian counterparts. So it was set in a neighborhood. It was a poor neighborhood in Medellin. So everybody knew us, you know. And we'd walk out of the post sometimes to grab a beer and a burger. There was a little neighborhood bar called Candilejas. It was our retrieve, you know, after working hard. Hey, on a Friday night, guys, let's go get some beers and burgers. And everybody knew us. You know, we'd walk over. Beat the, the neighborhood. So, uh, and Pablo had a lot of people in those neighborhoods who would warn him because, you know, they say, hey, there's a convoy coming out, Pablo. So, you, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and then, you know, so he had a lot of people that were, you know, on the take. So that, that was one of our challenges. You know, then if you look at the politicians who were on the take, the, the, the officials, I mean, it, it was just, you know, money was, was not a problem for Pablo Escobar. And uh, as we always say, Pablo was rated and Steve, what, the seventh, right? Seventh richest person in the world. Right. And about $30 billion. Uh, you know, money was not a problem. So he was paying off anybody uh, that he could. And a lot of people took money from Pablo Escobar. Well, that I guess that's what makes the world go around. And that's what breeds corruption is at the end game is, is all about money. So, Steve, um, how long uh, when you first arrived in, in Colombia, did it actually take you guys to really find and narrow down Pablo Escobar's uh, location? Well, three days after I arrived at the uh, embassy there in Bogota is when Pablo surrendered. So I like to tell the world that, you know, hey, Murphy, I heard Murphy's in town. I might as well give it up. You're going to get me, <laughs> which I'm glad you laughed because we all know that's a joke. <laughs> but for that next year is when he was in his custom built prison, the cathedral. Um, what that did for me is it gave me an opportunity to practice my Spanish, to work on my Spanish. I had a tutor coming in at the embassy and, uh, trying to, you know, learn some local dialects and colloquial sayings and things like that. But, uh, it also gave me an opportunity to get to know Javier better, uh, re really review the case files, work with the Colombian national counter police counterparts that we worked with there on a, on a daily basis. Um, but I got to tell you Larry, that first week when Escobar surrendered, uh, I thought, man, this is great. You know, we got the world's biggest cocaine producer uh, in custody. But when I got in the embassy, I'm looking around and Javier, Gary, and I mean, the whole office was disappointed and dejected. And I mean, just really down in the dumps. And, and it, that that attitude prevailed throughout the entire embassy. And I thought, what the heck? Why are you sad about this? But what I didn't know was all the atrocities and, and uh, you know, the dangerous situations they had been through and had seen. Uh, all their fellow Colombian police officers that had been murdered down there because of Escobar. And everybody felt like, you know, Escobar had won and they had lost the war. And that included the Gringos and the Colombians. So a year later when he escaped, and of course, by then I had a, a full understanding of everything. Um, 
And, and I got to tell you, also, Javier's his brain is like an encyclopedia. This guy doesn't forget anything. His organiza organization skills, well, that might could use a little work. but <laughs> Yeah, that could. A lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> but but I had good organization skills, and my memory's not as good as his, so it made for a great partnership. But his brain, he doesn't forget anything. He really doesn't. You know, if we're sending teletypes to Washington to report activities, I mean, he could tell me what the relationships were between everybody, who's in charge of what. This guy has this responsibility for transporting or running a Sicario unit, whatever it might be. So uh, it, it came out to be uh, a great worker relationship. And then we get to the day that Pablo escapes. Well, this, what led up to that was an informant coming in and reporting that Pablo had killed the Moncada and Galeano boys up there inside the prison. And that's when the United States went to the president of Columbia and said, Hey, here's what's going on. You know, you need to, uh, to move this man into a real prison and get him out of that country club that's up there. And just so you know, too, that whole year he was there, we were unable to intercept any communications coming out of there, you know, and that's, I mean, you know, you know, as well as we do, Larry, that's one of DEA's fortes. We're very good at doing that. Right. So, um, Eventually, the president uh, relented, and they decided to move Javier, or to move Pablo out of the prison, and uh, that's what led to his, you know, the firefight with the Colombian military and his eventual escape. And then the very next day, Javier and I are on a helicopter, where we're on a plane heading up to Medi, and we jump on a Huey gunship, and we're at the prison. That was pretty cool. Well, the prison uh, that he first went to. Uh, I actually understand that, that Pablo Escobar designed that prison so he could, could can continue his uh, operations. Yes, he did. He uh, he uh, he purchased the land. Uh, basically, he built it, and, and that was part of that plea agreement. And it was all because of the bombings, because of the people getting killed. You know, the thousands, and we've mentioned it again on a daily basis: the uh, the car bombs, the the Avianca plane crash. I mean, we could go on and on, the, pre the killing of a presidential candidate. So now when he gets to the point that Colombia is just frustrated, they're tired. So that's when Escobar calls up the president and says, I'll surrender, and these are the conditions. You know, I'm going to surrender to my own prison. I take my own prison guards. Uh, I take my own sicarios with me, and nobody can come and visit me. And that's when the government of Colombia accept that that deal. So that's why when Steve says, "Yeah, we basically we lost," and Pablo Escobar uh, won, so it, it was a country club setting. And uh, like Steve mentioned, as soon as he escaped, we're there. And uh, you know, I'll let Steve because uh, he tells a better story about the about about the prison, the so-called prison. It was. Uh... You know what? It was uh, such a joke. <laughs> so when you get there, you know, we flew on a helicopter. So we, we land inside the prison. So we go to the front gate to see what that looks like. And there are two sets of steel bars there that uh, create the appearance of a prison. That's what you expect to see in a prison, right? Right. But uh, once you got past that second set of bars, uh, it was just wide open. There were uh, pool tables, ping pong tables. There were games everywhere. Uh, there was uh, a full-fledged cafeteria, uh, refrigerator freezer where there were steaks and lobster, and I mean, some really nice food in there. You get up to the prisoners' quarters; they all had two-room suites. <laughs> you know, you go into Pablo's; he has a private bath with a jacuzzi tub. 
Now, what do we have in the prisons here in the United States? We call them group showers, don't we? Yeah. Um, you get in there. He had a uh, side-by-side refrigerator, freezer, a microwave, custom-built cabinetry. He had his drapes and his uh, the upholstery on his furniture all matched. It was it was kind of an ugly flowery pattern, but it still matched. Uh, get into his bedroom, the second uh, room of the two-room suite. He's got a custom-built bed that's larger than any king-size bed you've ever seen. He had an audio-visual center because he didn't have cable TV or Netflix, satellite TV, anything like that back then. But he did have the latest releases of TV shows and movies from all around the world. Uh, he had a fireplace in there. He had an office set up. Uh, interesting was rather than having photographs of his family hanging on the walls, he had in the in the first room, he had one of his wanted posters framed hanging on the wall so everybody could see it when you first came in. Uh, in the second room behind his desk, he had taken all his mug shots and had those matted and framed hanging on the wall behind his desk. Cause that's what he was proud of. You know, sure. um, I mean, I, you know, when I was a young kid, I'm sure I deserved a mug shot, but thank the good Lord. I never got one, but you know what, if I had one, I wouldn't be proud of it. I wouldn't have that up on display. Um, he had a picture of him, the iconic picture of him and his son standing in front of the white house, uh, had a picture of his hero the guy that he really looked up to Che Guevara, the devout communist that fought with the Castro regime in Cuba, fought with the Guatemalan co- uh, communist regime down there. Uh, he had just boxes and boxes of letters from people all around the world. You know, and Javier sat down and read a lot of those and he showed me one and this lady writes in and she said, Oh, I'm so proud of you, uh, Pablo for standing up for your beliefs. You know, even though the country's wrong, you're still trying to do the right thing. And by the way, I'd love for you to uh, have sex with my 13 year old daughter and have a love child. I mean, just really sick, sick stuff going on there. They had a, a uh, full-blown nightclub in the prison for the, <laughs> for the prisoners and their guests to entertain, you know, and some of the, uh, the photographs that came out of there were pretty, pretty uh, raunchy, I guess would be the best clean word I could come up with. Uh, it's pretty despicable. A lot of stuff's going on in there. It's obvious that they were, they were having a lot of orgies in there. Mm-hmm. Right. Javier. Yeah. You know what? And I just want to say, that's not a bad thing. So don't put the <laughs> negative on that. For that man. <laughs> uh, it well, was just, it was completely unbelievable. What was, and you know, and you got up to the backside of the prison where the perimeter fence was, there was just a, a big hole. There wasn't a gate. There was just a big hole in the, in the perimeter fence. So you could come and go as you pleased. And we knew, I mean, we, you know, we eventually learned, we suspected, but we eventually learned that Pablo was, he was going to soccer games. He was going to restaurants. He'd go spend a couple of days with his family down in the uh, Monaco building where they lived. It was just a complete and utter total joke. Yeah. So when after, uh, I guess the Colombian government decides to get a little more serious with, uh, Escobar. Um, then does he go to a real prison and escapes? No, he, he escaped that night when the Colombian military, and you know what? That was one of the mistakes Colombia did. They did not send the police because they, the police would have done their job. They would, they wouldn't have taken any from Escobar. They would probably just killed him on site. They took, uh, and only about 20 guys from the military went in and obviously uh, 
Pablo's uh, sicarios and bodyguards and the prison guards Pablo Escobar hired, you know, had a firefight <laughs> with the Colombian military guys. It, it, at the beginning, they took the hostage. Uh, it, was, it was a guy from the uh, Colombian justice system, the minister. He was the number two guy, uh, minister for justice. He's the one who told Escobar, hey, sorry, sir, we're going to move you to a jail cell in Bogota. That's where Escobar go, goes ballistic. They hold him hostage. They start beating him up. They want to kill him. Escobar's trying to call the president of Colombia, who's not answering the phone. So that's when the military guys finally come in. Firefight, six, seven people are killed, and Pablo Escobar and his, uh, what, seven favorite sicarios mm -hmm. walk out of that so-called prison. And that's when we actually... Steve and I arrived and we formalized the search block. And when I say formalized, that we said, all right, all our efforts are going to be going after Escobar. Steve and I, all right, we're going to be living here. And, you know, we stayed there for 18 months, you know. And then we brought in, and also at the beginning, you know, the Delta guys came in, the SEAL team guys, there were about 10 guys in total. And I'm not a military guy, but, you know, I knew those guys were good, you know. Delta guys, SEAL, uh, it was some uh, uh, SEAL, it was about 10 of them. They were the best in the world, man. But the orders from the Pentagon wars only to help out with intelligence. You cannot leave the base. So obviously that handcuffed them. Uh, mm -hmm. But they provided great intel for us. They provided great training for the cops. They learned a lot of different uh, tactics. So that, that's what also helped, you know, on uh, our, our guys, you know, being trained by by Delta and SEAL team uh, members. Wow, these are the best in the world. So obviously by us staying there, Steve and I, you know, and, and you know, you know the rules. Yeah, yeah, don't go out. But it was more of a blink in an eye. They wanted us to go out. So we went out with them. And that's how you learn that first-hand information. We'd get the ledgers. We'd get phone numbers. And then all of a sudden, like I said, in the U.S., we started putting the full court press on all Pablo's people working in uh, New York, in Miami. It was more Miami people. And you know what? Europe. He had a lot of European contacts. So it was joint efforts in that we were doing uh, take in the United States on Escobar's people, the Colombians war. So by us being there, and obviously, you know, that you get that first-hand information. If you wait, oh, uh, yeah, but, you know, there's a search warrant where there's tons of, uh, of great evidence, and you're not there you know, probably you're not going to get that. So by us being there and then, you know, Larry, I don't know if you know, but we used to have Xerox parties in Bogota where we would fly in, I don't know, about 10 big Xerox machines. We'd rent the warehouse and the Colombians would give us two days to copy everything so it was working 24 hours all the embassy participated and you know all that intelligence was going back to the u.s where the u.s had specialized group of analysts you know that were you know say identify the accounts and then all of a sudden we started seizing uh money from escobar in the united states so it was a great situation you know and uh so when you look at, I guess, when you look at the big picture here. So when was the actual day that you guys uh, pinpointed uh, Escobar's actual location and which uh, subsequently resulted in his death? Steve, can you, would you address that? Sure. The, uh, the final day was December 2nd, 1993. But, you know, just to give a little credit there at the beginning of the manhunt, right after the escape, there were multiple times 
when U.S. assets were able to come up with very credible information about where Pablo was. Uh, the problem was we had a Colombian colonel at that time, not Colonel Martinez, who's the real hero of this whole thing, but a different colonel who you know didn't want the gringos there, didn't like Javier and I being there, but he was ordered to by the president. Um, he was more concerned with police protocol and a police base in Columbia is like a military base here in the United States. So, you know, he wanted everybody falling out in formation in the morning. He wanted to do calisthenics, get their PT time in, have inspections. You know, that was more important to him than capturing, you know, the world's first narco terrorist, the world's most wanted criminal. Uh, so obviously, you know, none of those uh, operations were carried out. I mean, the ambassador even called Javier would blast him on the phone. What the hell are you guys doing? Why aren't you getting out there and capturing this guy? You know, we're getting reports that you're getting credible information and nothing's being done. And, you know, I mean, we had to dime the colonel out, um, which eventually led to his removal. But um, so we were close several times. We just uh, circumstances, you know, that really were really out of our control uh, led to us not capturing him earlier. But on December 2nd, 1993, you know, we've been there for 18 months now, and and just to be real honest with you, we were getting close to burnout. You know, I, my wife is back in Bogota by herself. Javier can't go visit his family back in the United States uh, because they're not letting us leave Colombia. They wanted, you know, they wanted us, one of us in Colombia at all times, and there towards the end, they wanted us both there all the time. Um, so it was just, it was stressful. There's a lot of pressure on you. But there was a lieutenant with the Colombian National Police named Hugo Martino. Or, or Hugo Martinez. Lieutenant Martinez taught himself how to use radio directional finding equipment. Now, the cool thing about this is the head of the search block, the 600-man force of the Columbia National Police and Gringos that was tasked with finding Pablo Escobar, the, the leader was Colonel Hugo Martinez. That's the lieutenant's father. So this is a father-son type thing. Okay. So on December 2nd, um, you know, we know the frequency that Pablo is using to talk on the phone. And when I say frequency, the phone systems back then were basically radio telephones that operated off of radio frequencies. If you know anything about, you know, the frequency spectrum, there's thousands of frequencies in there. If Pablo wanted to thwart our efforts to listen to him, all he had to do was change the frequency. And then us working with, with other U.S. agencies, you know, we're scrambling, trying to identify the new frequency. The problem, though, that Pablo faced with that is if he changed the frequency, he had to get the new frequency to all the people he wanted to talk to. So it wasn't just as easy as him turning a dial. Uh, but anyway, we had the frequency, um, which Javier was able to get through an informant, believe it or not. Um, so the lieutenant, his first indicator that day was a false reading. But, you know, the, this, this plainclothes group of police officers, the Dahin guys that we worked with, they went ahead and hit this warehouse, what turned out to be a, an empty warehouse. So, I mean, you can imagine the grief that the lieutenant called off for that. Well, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're doing. You know, throw that stuff in the trash. And I'm sure they gave him a hard time. But what he realized is there was a body of water close by, and um, water affects how radio frequencies travel through the air. He knew that. So he recalibrated his equipment to take that into consideration. And the next thing you know, he's driving down the street. Now, the way he used this equipment, he's got to have a driver because in, in his left hand, he's holding a meter. In his right hand, he's holding a handheld antenna and he's holding it out the window. 
Now, there's nothing suspect about that, is it? That's something you see every day, everywhere around the world, uh, which is a joke because you don't. Now, Lieutenant Martinez told us himself, and it's been documented in, in uh, on television series and so forth. As he's driving down the street, his meter's telling him to look to the left. He looks up, and he says he sees Pablo Escobar on the phone in a second-story window looking down, looking right at him. Now, with that intent, now they're in a plain clothes, and they're in an unmarked car. So you know, Pablo's probably not going to know who they are, except that the lieutenant's holding that antenna out the window. So the question has always been, why did Pablo not react? You know, we went back and listened to the tapes to see if, you know, maybe Pablo's talking to his, he, by the way, he was talking to his son, Juan Pablo. Maybe Pablo's talking to, listen, I want you to call these people. Oh, what the heck is that? There's a guy riding down the street holding an antenna out the window. That didn't happen. There was no break in his conversation whatsoever. So the only thing we've ever been able to surmise from all this is that, uh, like, like now I'm talking to you and I'm looking at my computer screen but I'm not seeing my computer screen. I'm talking to you. So I'm focused in on what happened back in 1993 in Columbia. So that's the only explanation we've ever come up with is that he saw what he saw, but he didn't realize what he was looking at. He didn't recognize the threat that was right there in front of him. So, you know, um, now I'm back at the base and, and just to clear one thing up right now, the narco series shows that I was on the roof there when Pablo Escobar was killed. That's not true. I was back at the base. I didn't get out there till after, Pablo was dead. I rode out with Colonel Martinez, as a matter of fact, and that was all after the fact. So, but I did see uh, the executive staff for Colonel Martinez. They're all rushing to his office. I was standing in the the room with all the uh, we had, you know, we had Delta Force and SEAL Team Six down there with us, so we got to be pretty good friends with them. So I'm standing there talking to them. So I run over to the colonel's office, and we had a good enough relationship with Colonel Martinez that you know he motioned for me to come on in and listen to what was going on, and. You know, one of the one of the lieutenant colonels whispered, they think they found Pablo. Well, honestly, we've been told that before. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you want to get your hopes up, but you don't want to get your hopes up because we've been down this road before, right? So we stand there and listen. And uh, you know, Colonel Martinez is issuing orders to get the troops ready. He's telling the guys on the radio, you know, secure the location, don't lose him. You know, don't attack, but don't lose him either. You do what you have to do, we're on the way. Well, to load 600 guys up in trucks and issue weapons and assignments and, you know, have a roll call, that doesn't happen in a matter of minutes. That takes a little bit of time to get everybody together and get the vehicles out. And then you got to drive to the site. Well, the, uh, the unit, the Daheen unit there went ahead. They, they sent a couple guys around back. They went ahead and, and blew open the front door of this row house. This is a three-story row house. When you come in the front door, you're in a combination kitchen and garage, believe it or not. I mean, there's a taxi cab parked right in the kitchen. <clears throat> That's the way this place is built. And then there's there's a bathroom in the farther back, and there's some storage rooms and so forth, a pantry for the food and all that. So they make entry there, do a quick search, and they start advancing to the second floor. Well, of course, Pablo heard the explosion that, that blew open the front door. And here was a big surprise. It turns out Pablo only has one Sicario that day. This is a guy, like Javier told you, at one point had as many as 500 Sicarios protecting him. On December 2nd, 1993, he only had one, a guy we call Limon, Lemon. So the guys get up to the second floor, and Pablo has already advanced up to the third floor of this row house. One of our, uh, one of our buddies there with the Dahin unit, he starts to go up the steps to the third floor, and he trips. 
falls down on his face, which saved his life because he says Pablo fired a shot at him, which went right over his head or else it would have struck him and probably killed him. Um, so, they, they, of course, they're engaging in a gun battle. Limon gets to that third floor window and behind the three-story row house that they're in is a two-story row house. So he jumps out that window down. So it's about an eight or 10 foot drop onto the roof of the, the two-story row house. And he runs across that roof to jump off onto the ground and make his escape, not realizing that the police were down there. When he gets to the edge of the roof, they order him to stop. He starts shooting at them. They shoot him. He falls off the roof dead. Um, that leaves Pablo back up on the third floor. Now he's at the window. Now he knows there are cops on the backside. He also knows there's cops coming up those steps and he's already been shooting at them. So he eventually jumps out that window, gets on the roof of the two story row house adjacent to that two story was another three story. So there was a wall there. He tried to stay along that wall to inch along until, you know, now he knows he's going to be caught in a crossfire here just any minute. I mean, any second. Uh, finally, he makes a mad dash across. The police yell at him. He's holding, Pablo is holding two nine millimeter pistols. Of course, he starts shooting at the cops in the window from the three-story row house. They return fire. They catch him in a crossfire. He, stuck, he struck three times that day. Pablo Escobar died on that roof. Well, that was, uh, I guess that was the end of the, and maybe the new beginning of a different group of uh, drug traffickers in <laughs> Colombia. So I, I know you mentioned Steve a little a little bit about uh, Narcos, the Netflix series. Mm-hmm. Um, can you guys describe and you know uh, we can throw Javier in this one? It, what was the? I know you guys were the technical advisors, but I also you know when you watch it, you, it appears to be some Hollywood uh, influence in the show. So what was your take on it? You know what, uh, Larry, uh, and Steve and I were hired as consultants, so we told them the actual, and we're cops, we're not TV people, so we had just retired, so man, we thought, you know, we had all the history, we had a lot of our notebooks, you know, we told them the actual, what really happened during the search of Pablo Escobar, then all of a sudden, when we started, you know, they would send us the scripts, it's like, what? This didn't happen. Uh, But then, uh, you know, it's called artistic licenses, obviously, yeah, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, we were like, uh, when the show came out, you know, I called Steve, I said, man, no one's going to see this. And then all of a sudden, I was very wrong. It had a world appeal. People all over the world were loving it. It's like, what? You know, and, and you know what? And, and I'll let Steve, because he, he does a, he did the comparison. Uh, why don't you go, Steve, with the comparison he did? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, and what Harry did tell you is we actually turned Netflix down. Well, it wasn't Netflix. It was a guy named Eric Newman. He's the creator of Narcos, the executive, the main executive producer. And, uh, and we turned him down because we really didn't think anybody was interested in the story. It was too old, you know, just, we didn't think anybody cared. So that was kind of funny how that all started. Um, but last time we heard Narcos has been viewed over 60 million times worldwide. So, um, like Javier said, we're cops, man. <laughs> we don't know anything about Hollywood. Um, the, I will tell you one point that is absolutely true in there. Now there's, there is a lot of falsehoods, uh, well, creative license used 
And Javier and I did an, an analysis. We think about a third of what you see in the, in the first three seasons of Narcos is true. Those accidents, those events actually happened and they're depicted correctly. The second, third, well, those events happened, but they've been changed. They've been dramatized or, I mean, just the facts have really been skewed, but they're just not depicted correctly. And then that last third, boy, that's just make-believe Hollywood, uh, you know, examples like, uh, one of the most frequently asked questions we used to get was, uh, hey, did they really kill your cat? We had a cat named Puff. Puff died in Colombia, but he was not uh, assassinated by the Sicarios. He was old and he had a heart attack and just died of natural causes. Uh, you know, people accuse Javier of, because of the show of, of being crooked, that he was passing classified information to Los Pepes. That's not true. That's all Hollywood. Uh, there's one scene that shows I get kidnapped by the Cali cartel. I've never been kidnapped. But the one thing that is absolutely true about that whole series is that Javier is really a man slut. <laughs> yeah, please. And tell people now, <laughs> hey, you know what, Larry? Like I told people, I wish that was true. <laughs> Believe me, I wanted that to happen. But nah. <laughs> but it's it's entertaining. And, and you know what? And I just got to say that the chronology of the show is accurate. The timeline, the, the events. But all the other stuff, you know what, but it makes for a great viewing. And, uh, like I said, it had a, it still has the world appeal. We mm -hmm. just saw some stats, right? See, it was like the, uh, Netflix and, you know, Netflix is very secretive about their ratings, but you know, something just got published, uh, where I think, uh, Narcos and the Escobar series was, uh, the fourth, right. Yep. On the list. Fourth of all time of all original time. Netflix series. Right. Now, that's an amazing fact. The fourth of all time Narcos, I mean, uh, Netflix series. So let me just ask you guys this. When, when now, you know, after the smoke is cleared, and, of course, we're all in a, I guess I always called it a twilight of a mediocre career. Um, <laughs> how, how do you look back? Um, how the country of Colombia has evolved in handling uh, the drug traffickers um, as opposed to when you first began. Do you think the country of Colombia has been successful in turning around uh, their issues? Well, you know what? Yes, Colombia's it has turned the issues. I mean, they're still drug trafficking, but uh, you know, like they, they they've learned and we learned. You know what? But what happened with Medellin? We took them down. Cali took it over. Took them down. Anyway, cartels. Right now in Colombia, and you know what? A lot of countries looked at Colombia, see what they did right. You know, we learned from our the mistakes. The, the trafficking groups are smaller. They're more independent. They're still trafficking. Companies. I mean, out of Colombia, but you know, it's a it's a country that learned their technology is wow, one of the best, uh, one of the best in the world. And you know what? We tell people at the end of every show we do, you know, visit Colombia. It's a great country, uh, beautiful country. People are the warmest; they'll give you anything. Uh, it's safe to visit. The only caveat we say: if you go to Medellin, and we tell people visit Medellin. It's called it's the cap, the flower capital of the world. Beautiful, you know, great uh, mountains, uh, the houses, beautiful countryside. The only, the only thing we tell them: if you go to Maine, you do not badmouth Pablo Escobar. Why? Because there's still a lot of people that love Pablo Escobar. You know what? And the we've had another 
interesting statistic is that the number one uh, travel where pe when people go to Medellin, the number one tourist attraction is Pablo Escobar's gravesite. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Steve, let me ask you this. So, you know, spending that time in Colombia and then coming back to the States and you know, working in different components within our within the DEA organization, how much of a change did you see within DEA's organization to evolve after the Pablo Escobar uh, investigation? Well, believe it or not, there there was some evolution there. Uh, some of the practices that, that Javier implemented before I got there and then that we implemented together uh, once I did get there uh, were, you know, we didn't do it to try to create new programs or anything. We did it because we thought it made common sense. And I like vetting the police officers that we were working with. Um, well, I guess that's <laughs> people give us credit for creating the SIU <laughs> and DEA, the sensitive investigative units, uh, which is not what we did at all. We just did what we thought made, you know, made sense. Mm -hmm. um, but that because of that and because of uh, other programs that were developed in DEA, um, they used our tactics against the Cali cartel and they were successful in bringing them down. And then the next cartel, the North Valley cartel in Colombia, same tactics brought them down. And then, you know, the next guy steps up is a guy we call Don Berna, who is the leader of Los Pepes. He became the biggest cocaine trafficker in Colombia, took him down. He's doing 30 years in prison here in the United States. So DEA uh, is capable of adapting and, and uh, you know, I mean, the drug traffickers always have more money than us. People ask us in our, in our shows, well, uh, if you had today's technology, could you have defeated the Manning cartel quicker? Well, they have the same technology, if not better than what we have. You know, we found out that the Cali cartel, they were running wire intercepts, telephone intercepts on people in Cali. They had access to the telephone records at the Colombian telephone company so they could do subscriber checks and, uh, you know, they could pull the toll records to see who those phone numbers are talking to. They were just as well equipped as we ever were. So given the fact that they have money and also their intimidation factor, you know, we're, we're, you hate to say it like this, but this is the truth and you know it. We're, our hands are tied because we work within the confines of the law, and that's what a civilized nation does. And we're big proponents of the rule of law. The traffickers don't have that restriction. So if they want a piece of technology and the company says, hey, I'm sorry, we can't sell it to you, that's restricted, then they go kill the guy. Well, the next person that takes over that position is probably going to have a different thought process when they tell him they wanted that equipment, right? Sure. So it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge, but uh, very, very proud of DEA. Uh, we still love the organization. We we do not, let's just say this right up front, we do not speak on behalf of DEA because we're a couple of retired guys, just like you are. Uh, but we will always do everything we can to promote it because we've seen firsthand the type of men and women that come into DEA who put them, their self-safety and their self-progression aside. Of course, that's not 100%, but we have a vast majority of our people are like this. They want to do the mission. They want to serve the citizens of the United States. They want to live up to their oath, which is to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. So just, I mean, every time we get an opportunity to talk to DEA folks, it's it's like uh, it's like almost like a party for us because you're going into the midst of true heroes. That's that's uh, very well said, Steve. I don't think it could be described any, any way better than that. So let's uh, 
in our final moments, um, how about uh, you guys addressing a little bit about your book, how we can purchase it, uh, if people want to hear you guys speak, how they can get in touch with you? You know, the, the easiest way to, to catch up with everything we're on to is uh, on our website, which is deanarcos.com. So that's D-E-A-N-A-R-C-O-S.com. Uh, there's a calendar on there that will show you uh, when and where we'll be around the world. And just so you know, right now, it's pretty empty. <laughs> this COVID thing has really killed our, our speaking events. But our first four, this is our 2021 is our sixth year. Uh, 20 was pretty lean because of COVID, but the first four years we averaged 75 appearances a year, uh, around the world. So it was uh, extremely busy schedule, but man, we got to visit all kinds of police, uh, places. We got to meet cops and, and some just great people all around the world. It was, so that was a lot of fun. Our book, uh, the cheapest way to get our book is to go on Amazon, to be quite honest with you. But if you want an autographed and personalized copy, the only place you can get that is at our website. Uh, if you're international outside the United States, uh, you can order autographed and personalized copies of our books off of eBay. So that's all on the website. Um, we're also on social media, you know, and, and I got to tell you, before we started this, I had nothing to do with social media. I didn't know what Facebook was, <laughs> none of that stuff. But now we're on, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, all at DEA Narcos. We have a YouTube channel. And I think we have Vimeo uh, videos as well. So we, and we also have a man that knows what the heck he's doing that takes care of all that for us. So <laughs> it's not like a couple of old farts, you know, trying to, to get into TikTok and all that kind of stuff that's going on out there now. The book is the actual history of the Medellin cartel told by Steve and I. And like I said, we were there. So it's a, it, it's, it's a great read. Well, I got to say it, of course. What, what else am I going to say? Right. But it's a, it's part of history, man. Uh, and I want to uh, thank you guys for taking the time. I know you have a very busy schedule. Uh, I hope that our listeners uh, were educated about really the dedication and the life and struggles of DEA agents, whether they're here in the United States or in some foreign country. And as I can mention that I'm aware of that DEA exists in about 70 foreign countries all over the world. And uh, again, I, want to tell you that uh, that I really appreciate you guys coming on and taking the time. Thank you very much. Larry, thanks so much for having us on the show, buddy. We wish you uh, a huge success with your podcast and uh, we look forward to seeing you again somewhere down the road. Yep. Likewise, Larry, while wow, great interview and, uh, you know, wish you also very good successes. Thank you guys. Forletta investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.